This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's running for his training again. So thankfully, the wonderful Marcus Ashworth will be joining me for the hour to help me talk through all the top stories of the day. Marcus, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. We can just also trash shot guy for an hour. That's also fine, too. Um, we're all, and you're definitely not at a holiday party because apparently all of those are canceled from snow, high energy costs, COVID um, and strikes. So we will get to all that in just a moment. A quick check in here on where markets ended. So uh, Euro stock 600 ended down a full 1.2 percentage points. You got yield jamming their way higher. You have a sell off pretty much anywhere you look in the equity market. The FTSE down by 1.2%. Also impressive because some of the PMIs held up better than expected. Um, and you also saw, for example, in the UK, the services number actually hit 50, which would signal expansion. So there are some better signs in the market, but we're really still digesting that hawkish rhetoric yesterday from the ECB. Lower equities, higher yields, pretty much full stop. We're going to break down all of these things throughout the next hour. Now let's get Charlie Pellet for all the other stories we need to know. Uh, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. British retailers have been hit by a sharp drop in customers during the peak period for Christmas sales. Shoppers stayed at home amid widespread rail strikes. Unions staged walkouts across much of the UK's train network on Tuesday and Wednesday with another 48-hour protest. Today, they are demanding higher pay and resisting changes to working practices. According to data provider Springboard, footfall at UK retail destinations dropped 7.5% this week. Now, in previous years, the equivalent weeks have seen footfall rise by an average of 8.5% as people rush out to buy last-minute gifts. A salvo of at least 76 Russian missiles has knocked out power and water across Ukraine as President Vladimir Putin's forces continue their campaign of attacking infrastructure. NatWest Group has become the first UK bank to have its emissions reductions claims approved by the Science-Based Targets Initiative as such certifications take on greater importance for a growing number of investors. The lender published its goals today and SBTI confirmed that it has approved the numbers which are in line with NatWest's target of halving the climate impact of its financing activities by 2030. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele back to you now here in New York. Thank you so much, Charlie, who is also, Marcus, coming your way. So what's his plan now? You're going to Heathrow tonight. Yeah, very briefly. And what a week it has been. Monitoring headlines about potential baggage handler strikes, monitoring headlines about the weather. Uh, anyway, flying into Heathrow, changing at Heathrow, flying over to Belgium, Belgium to Zurich, getting on a train, going through the Alps, and then hopefully going out for pasta in Milan. Your advice, Marcus, wow. to, to Charlie Pellet? Yeah, Pella? great trip. Yeah, don't get a British train, uh, which you're clearly not, so well done. Um, <laughs> it's a pit stop. Flying on I'm the jealous. Bernina, Ex or actually traveling on the Bernina Express through the Alps. So uh, looking forward to that, Marcus. Enjoy. Charlie, we'll also pleasure. be back in a half hour quickly for an update, but otherwise have an amazing trip. Um, so, Marcus, when was the last time you were at a Christmas party? Uh, technically, I went to our desk when we weren't allowed to call it a party. Um, it was a gathering, apparently. Um, so uh, two or three days ago. Oh, okay. But, I haven't been to one uh, in... In years. And apparently a lot of people aren't getting Christmas parties there except for Marcus, apparently. Um, so here, here's a stat for you. Ready? 
We're looking at the hospitality business losing a whopping 1.5 billion pounds in lost sales because of rail strikes. You also have a COVID resurgence, I should say. You also have the snow, and also everyone's spending a lot of money on electricity. They're not maybe going to be spending it at a Christmas party. Um, they're looking at cancellation rates reaching as high as 40%. So, Marcus, Guy and I talked to the woman sort of behind this, the UK hospitality CEO, Kate Nichols, and she spoke with us about how bad it could get. It's not as bad as, as two years ago, the first year of the pandemic when we were fully closed and the whole of the country was effectively in lockdown over Christmas. It is comparable to what we saw this time last year. It's exactly the same week um, when you have the, the big peak Christmas trading week. That was the week that we started to have the advice not to go out and socialise and party and to go back to working from home with Omicron. And in terms of the impact cancellations, the fall in footfall due to commuters not coming into work, and crucially, this time hitting the Christmas shopping weekend coming up, um, it is a similar amount of loss that the hospitality sector is facing. It's a similar level of cancellation. So we are seeing a hit to the economy, about 1.5 billion in terms of lost sales and cancelled office Christmas parties and, and Christmas events. Um, and that is similar to, this, to what we saw in the Omicron period of two weeks, the end of December last year. Kate. Um, what do you think is the biggest issue that you're hearing? Is it a resurgence of COVID? Is it the snow? Is it the strikes? Is it the economy in general? People don't want to spend the money because they need to pay their electricity bills. Uh, it, it's not COVID this year, fortunately. That's, that's why this is so devastating. This is the first year where illness and, and restrictions were not resulting in cancellations of parties. Yes, you have got seasonal flu, but that's not the main reason. Um, I think this week in particular, the level of cancellations that we're seeing across the UK is directly attributable to the rail strikes, in particular in central London. So the cancellation rate across the UK, around 30% in central London, it's been 65% on those strike days, and you can see it hitting on those strike days. You've then had a knock-on effect as the city is emptied in city centre has emptied over the course of this week due to, to the rail strikes themselves. Bad weather not helping people get around and, and not helping them find alternative routes through, but it's undoubtedly yeah. rail strikes that are hitting the big corporate mm. events. That was Kate Nichols, a hospitality C UK hospitality CEO. So, Marcus, you're like never coming into the office ever again? Uh, well, I mean, I just think that people adapt and move around. And okay, maybe they don't go to city centres and shop there but they'll buy online or they'll go to their local pub um, rather than perhaps going out in, in, in the city. Uh, that is, I mean, clearly the, the, the rail strikes are having some impact, but mm -hmm. I wonder how much it will affect overall retail spending. We had a bad, bad month in November, but I mean, you know, Andrew will tell us all about this, but I'm, I, I think that people will find ways of spending it just in different ways, that's all. Uh, and speaking of, good intro, Andrea Felstead, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, joins us now for this exact point. So is this like a death knell for the retailers, or are they just going to spend but spend differently? I think they will spend differently. I totally agree with Marcus. Um, I think we're seeing this much more in central London than in other parts of the country, um, and also sort of big, you know, metropolitan areas where you need to get the train in. But other areas will be... Uh, far less affected. Um, I had some footfall data from Springboard uh, for earlier in the week, and it was really high streets that were the worst affected out-of-town retail parks that you can drive to weren't as badly affected. And there is this point that consumers do adapt. They've had to adapt in many ways for the past three years. So they're just adapting to another thing that's come along. So, Andrew, you wrote, uh, I think, 
wisely that, 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 that Christmas is going to be good this year in, in overall, just because it's sort of revenge spending or revenge Christmas as such a thing after, you know, two lousy ones. But there will be a price to pay, which would be a hangover in January. Perhaps because people aren't being able to go to Christmas parties so much this year, maybe a lot of them get delayed into January and January will be less bad. Or is that too simplistic? That that is certainly possible. I mean, I I I was ringing around earlier in the week, and I wasn't getting as dismal a picture of things out there than um, than than some other people have been painting. I think there's this London point and then the rest of the country, but certainly, if things have been cancelled this week, I think next week's too late. Most people are disappearing for Christmas. Next week will be much more focused on staying local, on food shopping. So January is the ideal time to, to rebook those events. Mm-hmm. In terms of, I'm not going to rebook an event. I don't, I don't want to party that much. That's totally fine. But I am very excited for all the retailers who didn't get to sell their stuff to me before Christmas to then discount it a lot after Christmas and then I buy it in January. Do you see that evolving in any way whatsoever? Even though, by the way, Guy told me that my New Year's resolution needed to be I don't buy shoes anymore, which quite frankly, I feel like is just mean. <laughs> I think you will have plenty to choose from. Um, you know, we, we still are, are overstocked. Um there will be excess inventory. Um, if it isn't a great Christmas, there will be lots in the sale. I would make the most of those sales because what you tend to find in retail is, and we're seeing it already, is, is because everyone had too much stock as opposed to last year when there wasn't enough. Remember a year ago, there were lots of shortages. When there is too much stock, retailers cut back on their orders. So um, that means there will be le- hopefully less inventory excess inventory going forward so next year we shouldn't see a repeat of the big you know mountain of inventory we saw in the spring so make the most of those discounts this is my moment marcus this is well i'm just shocked you're sounding like a debbie downer you don't like to rebook parties alex this is not what i thought about you but now i'm too old for parties man (laughs) oh come on already andrew's just giving you carte blanche the green light what do you want to call it to go buy more shoes just pick your time wisely Oh, yeah, no, I'm definitely going to do that. We just have to tell Guy that I'm allowed to do that because it's like, you know, the swan song. Um, Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, I I guess I I think the broader point is how is the U.K. going to actually sustain spending uh, in the first quarter? Like, despite the discounts, just with the rise of cost of living increase and the mounted uncertainty markets, I have a hard time. I appreciate the services number for the PMI wasn't terrible today, but I have a hard time getting excited about the U.K. economy. Yeah. Manufacturing was, and I think uh, Andrew probably uh, shed some light on this. The, the retail sales number for November weren't great, as in, you know, uh, perhaps the uh, uh, Black uh, you know, Friday was wasn't very good for the UK. Maybe that's wrong. I, I find retail sales numbers to be treated with extreme caution. You know, lies, damn lies, and particularly retail sales statistics because they always <laughs> get revised. What do you think, Andrew? And also. Well, when you actually look, I mean, I know we've got inflation. We have got inflation uh, flattering the top line. But actually, when you look at the at the value of sales figures, not seasonally adjusted, they were actually up compared with last year. So, um, you know, it wasn't quite as bad. I stick with my view. This Christmas will not be as much of a turkey as everyone thinks. But in the new year, things are going to get very nasty. 
For how long you think oh, they're gonna get nasty for? Sorry, Marcus, go ahead. I, no, I say apart from shoe sales in New York, once you get a rocket. Launcher, <laughs> yeah, so. fair. I think it will be all year. I think next year will be a very difficult year. Um, you've got those heating bills landing after Christmas. You've got credit card bills coming. People are depleting their pandemic savings. I remember covering retail in I think it was 2011 when the VAT rate went up. From um, I think it was 17, it was either 15 percent or 17.5 percent. It went up to 20, and we saw immediately that retail sales fell back. Now, I, I think we could see something similar, not caused by that going up, but caused by that sort of avalanche of bills that come in in the new year. And and I think it will intensify through the year. Maybe by this time next year, if inflation's not quite as bad. Uh, we may, you know, see see things on a, you know, on an upward slope. But I think most of next year is going to be very difficult. Yeah, that's what it kind of shaping up to be. Um, Marcus, do you think that the government's going to have to help out in any way, and more meaningfully? No, I'm not. I mean, I hear exactly what Andrew say on, on retail sales, and, and I, I think overall that there, there will be, you know, we are in a recession, a mild one at the moment. There is a capacity; it could get worse. But I think because of we've got pretty much full employment. Uh, this will be a hunker down, you know, hmm. get on with your regular lifestyle, avoid the big ticket items. Um, and yes, it's not going to be pleasant, but I, I think there'll be a, you know, shifted to cheaper chains, you know, maybe high end or middle end probably get squeezed the most. But as far as the overall economy is concerned, I, I don't think we're going to be hit too badly just because there are such good levels of employment. Um, yeah. And I was going to say, too, that 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 also, Andrea, is your whole bag. Like, do consumers spend down their savings or not? Because that's really going to dictate what kind of dip we have. It will. Um, holidays has been a massive thing this year. Um, and I think a lot of families use their savings for holidays. I think it'd be very interesting to see if that gets repeated again n- next year. In a normal environment, mm-hmm. you would expect travel to be curtailed a little bit more. But I must say, I, I have to agree with Marcus on this employment point because consumers make the biggest changes to their spending when they lose their job or they see those around them Hmm. being made redundant and you know thankfully we haven't seen too much of that yet so that's another reason why so far things are holding up no it's such a fair point andrea felstead thank you very much are you done with your christmas shopping andrea oh yes all done all done what about you me up please i was done like black friday you know i got all the sales marcus what about you (laughs) Andrea finished hers in July, I suspect. She's always very well organized and she gets all the heads up on what's going on. So I don't do Christmas shopping. I'm a, I'm a Grinch. You don't do Christmas, like no holiday shopping like at all? No. Wow. Miserable. I'm married too long. I'm just in, separate into a, into a set. We get each other what we want, um, when we want. Sorry, boring, I know. So boring. He's else. definitely not the retail target market. Andrea, thanks a lot, Andrea Felstead. If I don't talk to you, happy holidays to you. Um, okay, coming up, we'll talk about Grinching in Europe, I guess. Uh, the PMIs weren't terrible. They could have been a lot worse. Are they going to get better? We're going to break that down in just a second. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Marcus Ashworth joins me from the UK, which I very much appreciate. The headline here is up to a third, uh, excuse me, that PMI for the Eurozone actually 
wasn't that bad. Overall, flash purchasing managers index rose more than expected in December to 48.8%. Plus, the rate of decline is also slowing as well. So both of those two things are relatively good news. So Guy and I spoke to the guy sort of behind the numbers, Chris Williamson. He's a S&P Global Markets chief business economist, and he kind of took us through some of the numbers here. So this is part of our conversation. The downturn that many were fearing two or three months ago in, in Europe is not looking as severe as, as feared. Uh, these numbers are rising generally across the board. French services being being uh, uh, bucking the trend a bit and worsening. But what we've got here is a situation whereby it looks like October was the worst of the downturn for now, and things are things are alleviating. This leaves sort of GDP rates of decline in the fourth quarter, sort of minus 0.3 for the UK, minus 0.2 for the euro area. I mean, this isn't a severe downturn yet. Does it turn into one? Or do you think that this data shows sort of a soft and shallow recessionary environment that Lagarde was pointing to yesterday? Well, this is where it gets very interesting because when you go back to October where these numbers hit a low, that's when we had a, a number of factors really hitting Europe. You had the botched mini-budget in the UK, which caused a huge amount of turmoil. And if you dig down in those PMI numbers, we can see that financial services took a massive hit. Activity there slumped very, very sharply, and it started to recover a bit from that shock. And that's been the principal driver that led to this stabilisation of the service sector in December. Meanwhile, in the in the euro area, we had great fears about the impact of the energy crisis and adverse winter weather that was going to lead to a lot of factory disruptions and, and lower production levels as they had to curb their energy usage. A lot of those fears have also abated as well because uh, the energy situation is improving a bit and there's been a lot more fiscal support than, than uh, we'd anticipated. So these factors have, have aligned to lift the PMI numbers, but that leaves still a picture of, well, before all that happened, the trend was weakening. So are we simply going to see a continuation of that downward trend now we're over these little hiccups, especially as you've got the further tightening of financial conditions from those 50 basis point rate hikes from both the ECB and the Bank of England, as well, of course, the Fed. Chris, what's happening with, with supply chains? What's happening with Labour? Ah, so here's, here's another factor that's helped lift things as well, because supply chains a year ago, these were causing all sorts of havoc, driving prices up, shortages everywhere. That's reversing now. We've actually got faster delivery times in Germany and in, in, in the Eurozone as a whole now. Uh, you've also had two months now of faster delivery times in the US. So global supply chains are healing. So this is a sea chain compared to what we were seeing earlier in this year. And that's taking a lot of pressure off of prices at the same time mm -hmm. because you've got demand slumping. You've got companies working down their inventory levels, seeing they've got too many raw materials, they've got too many finished goods, adding another deflationary force. And that's why we're seeing these input cost measures across both manufacturing and services really start to come down quite nicely now. That was Chris Williamson of S&P Global Markets, a chief business economist. Marcus, okay, bear with me for a second. You laughed at me yesterday, but the uh -huh. but there was a there was a point where it was like, well, maybe things aren't as bad in the eurozone. Maybe we can get through the winter without a disaster. Therefore, the Fed, the ECB can raise rates aggressively. I'm sure I was only ever laughing with you, maybe. Alex. But look, me. <clears throat> um, I think that the point that's I mean. I'm surprised the Eurozone economy is holding up as well as it is. Mm. And they had a very good summer, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, travel 
clearly made a big help to a lot of us, particularly the southern, sunnier parts of, of, of the Eurozone. And, and actual fact, the reopening is carrying through. So, um, you know, in some sense, that's very good news, which is perhaps, I hope, not giving the ECB too much confidence they can keep on hiking quite uh, as fast as they clearly want to. Nonetheless, they've got to get inflation down. They're behind the curve with it. They're only at 2% now. You know, the UK's at 35 We know the US at 4 and going higher. So in some senses, um, I look at the UK as well. You know, there's a possibility mm. that we may not actually go into recession, but it's we're just on the edge. And we know when you go into recessions, bad things can happen. Things can tip uh, badly worse. And at the moment, we look like we are just about getting away with it. I mean, I do have to say that when Christine Lagarde was talking about how it's a soft and, sh- and a shallow recession for Europe next year, I was like, are you kidding me? How is that possible? <laughs> but then you get these numbers and you're like, well, OK. I mean, Germany's manufacturing sector actually improved. I mean, that's the area that you would have thought would gotten hit the hardest. Um, and you have to think, well, maybe there is some truth to that. Maybe like the the runway for soft landing is bigger than we had thought it was. Well, I think the, for, for Germany in particular, I mean, Deutsche Bank was predicting a, a drop of 4%, even 5% at one point. Even the Bundesbank is looking, certainly for the first half, to be something similar, down to 3% or more. But the government in Germany in particular, much to the annoyance, funny enough, of lots of other European governments, is really spending a lot. And I think that's the one factor, uh, you know, that they're not going to allow EU-wide sort of centralised spending, perhaps, um, which clearly Fred, France and Italy have been pushing hard for, an increased level of that. But nonetheless, you know, certain governments, particularly by Germany, will be spending more. And maybe that, that makes a difference. The other thing, maybe. of course, is you just don't know how hard the winter's going to be. Maybe. I wonder what happened in France, though. It was like a big services down, downfall there, right? I mean, I, f- I feel like it was the steepest fall in almost two years. I wonder what's going on there. I think catch up. I, I mean, you know, it, 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 some of the numbers in France have been very strange and mm. looked artificially high and supportive. You know, obviously, the massive energy subsidies, which has has kept things looking good for a while. Uh, Spain's done the same thing. Uh, but there's, these things always come and catch up. And I think we're just seeing a bit of a correction to perhaps the, the level where France uh, might may settle a bit better because it looked a bit too high prior to that. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, we're going to talk about the markets next with Kriti uh, for a little bit. But I'm just curious as to the price action of the last two days. Like, what signal do we take from this? Like, do we retest the lows? Like, oh. how bad does it get kind of thing? You got 30 yeah. seconds. Yeah. It's not good. And I think, you know, the fact it's repeated, particularly in Europe, there's a real game changer that the markets have repriced uh, bunt yields to be much higher. And then obviously everything above that, the credit spread into various other countries in Europe, particularly Italy, will be even wider. Um, I think a real, real shocker for for a lot of uh, European pension funds and and money managers looking at at holding bonds, thinking the worst was over uh, and they've been caught out badly here. Complete repricing of the terminal rate of Europe. By at least 25, maybe yeah. possibly um, 50 higher. Hey, keep this thought. We'll discuss it next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Marcus Ashworth joins me over uh, in the UK. So let's get to U.S. stocks now. It is a brutal, brutal day. Um, continuing to decline, the PMIs came in light, although nothing really to write home about. But the S&P is down over 1%. You have about $4 trillion worth of options expiring today. Um, there is a lot of open interest around like the 3,800 level. So you can see that maybe potentially being defended. You also are below the 50-day moving average now. It's been a really traumatic week. Um, and you're also seeing selling in the long end of the market uh, with bond yields up. And that usually then indicates uh, more of a recessionary fear. So there's a lot going on. It seems like that 
shift from inflation to recession and kind of really taking hold in the equity and the bond market. My question is also, yeah, okay, it's the end of the year. Like, how many people are just going to book their profits and go home? Like, Marcus, seriously, like, who's going to be trading in the next two weeks? Like, book the profits, don't assume anything, and get out of town. I think it was exactly that, especially as you had the Fed with a sort of uh, a harder punch than people expected after the very good CPI number. Everyone had thought, okay, the Fed's going to pivot now. They've done the 50. But then, in again, it's a more hawkish than people thought mm. uh, the power would be. That took back a while to sink in. And then the ECB, Wumpa, uh, I think that double punch affected the whole world, you know, even you know stocks in the States and that sort of stuff, because it it makes people realize that, you know, Central banks aren't done, uh, you know, raising rates. Well, certain parts of central banks aren't done raising rates. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, we'll get to that in just a second. But for his last update on markets, not markets, headlines. Yeah, Let's go to Charlie Pellet, and then he's going to run and get a plane. Exactly. Very exciting. Here's what's going on. UK retail sales unexpectedly fell in November as Black Friday failed to deliver its usual boost, deepening the cost of living crisis engulfing the sector. The Office for National Statistics said the volume of goods sold in shops and online fell 0.4%. Sales excluding auto fuel fell 0.3%. Economists were expecting a gain on both measures. UK consumer confidence lingered near its record low for an eight-month, the longest streak of gloom in the survey's 50-year history. GFK says its measure of sentiment ticked up two points to minus 42 in December, near the reading of minus 49 in September that marked the trough. Workers at Rolls-Royce Motorcars will be getting as much as an 18% pay increase, which the Unite Union claimed was a record increase. And the chief financial officers of FTSE 100 companies are complaining that the big four audit firm's fees are too high and say they should not have to pick up the tab for pay rises handed to accountants. The 100 Group, which represents the finance directors of most of London's blue-chip companies, made the comments in a letter to Deloitte, EY, KPMG, and Price Waterhouse PwC last month. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thanks so much. Have a great trip. We'll miss you. i see you in the new year. Um, okay, Mark was just talking about markets and also central banks going hawkish, staying hawkish, being hawkish. Well, just to confirm this point, Bloomberg's Kathleen Hayes caught up with New York Fed President John Williams earlier, and then he said that even though inflation is showing some signs of slowing, th- the price pressures are just too elevated. This is part of their conversation. My colleagues expect the Fed funds rate to get to, say, 5 to 5.5% 5. Uh, next year. I think that's a, that gets us uh, into that hopefully sufficiently restrictive stance of policy that will bring inflation back to 2%. So I am getting increasingly confident uh, that we're getting uh, closer to that point. Uh, but obviously, we have to watch the data. Uh, the inflation and other data have surprised us, and we, we need to be on the lookout for that. But I, th- I do feel we're in a, getting to a better place. Now, just about two weeks ago, you said that the Fed funds rate has to get above the inflation rate to bring down inflation. Uh, how far above inflation does it have to get? Well, that's that's the question, right? In, in way we talk about this is in terms of sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation back to two percent. So to me, it's really about getting it high enough, and of course, keeping it 
uh, high for, a while, for enough time to really see clear signs of inflation moving back down on, uh, on the way to 2%. You know, my view is you have to think about real interest rates, as you said. If you look at, again, the median dots, if you will, in the, in the economic projections that we just put out, you see the real Fed funds rate, say the Fed funds rate minus the core PC inflation, okay. around 1.5%. I think that's a reasonable view of uh, restrictive. Again, whether it's sufficiently restrictive, we'll have to watch the data and see. But I think that's, to me, uh, basically where, where I'm thinking right now. That was John Williams, New York Fed president. Um, joining Marcus and I is Kriti Gupta. She joins me now uh, in the studio. Kriti, what, what's been your take over the last few days? I'm kind of surprised, actually, because I keep waiting for the Santa rally to kick in, the seasonality to kick in, and it actually hasn't. Everyone's waiting. I mean, technically, Santa rally is supposed to be your last five days of uh, the tr- last five trading days of the year. But usually we see a lot of green on the screen going into the end of the year anyway. We haven't seen any of that. It's been... Um, I'm trying to coin a new term. Maybe Marcus can help me with this because his calm titles are always so helpful, but like a Grinch sell-off or something like that. But we'll figure it out. Uh, uh, name name trademark on that um, patent pending. But uh, I, I, that is what, that's what's scary to me here. The idea that people are kind of pulling out of the market. They're ending the year almost early and they're doing it in a way that's essentially, let's just cash out altogether. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, an interesting approach. Maybe the first week of January will be even better then because, you know, they'll come back uh, wanting to buy, buy, buy. I, I definitely mm. I think there was going to be a Santa rally. It got knocked on the head uh, probably by the central banks. Uh, that CPI did look great and everyone got excited. And then um, there's a little bit of realism come in. But, you know, it doesn't mean it won't start again in January. No, f- fair enough. You sound so convinced. Um, Ever the but, optimist. Yes, yeah, uh, not at all. Um, <laughs> so but 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 let's get to them what the central banks did over the last 48 hours, because no matter what, it looks like you're looking for a world of some central bank divergence in a way that we haven't seen in a bit. And I'm wondering that the volatility that will inject in the different areas of the market and then how the bubble of leverage will kind of spread and move during that time. Um, Kriti, what do you what do you think about that? Like we've seen volatility, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like now we're gonna see a lot more volatility injected in a lot of different asset classes. I think there's a way to quantify this, and I haven't done this myself, but I half I'm planning to, and I will come back with a full report. But to me, what was so striking was exactly what Marcus said in essentially the last, uh, I don't want to say 48 hours, but Tuesday going into Wednesday, the CPI report that had this massive uh, margin of deceleration, one that surprised the market for, by the way, a second time in a row. So you are seeing kind of base effects kick in. But the repricing is what stood out to me. The fact that Fed swaps, correctly or incorrectly, wherever you stand on this, were pricing in a peak policy rate of in May of 4.8%. Within 24 hours after the Fed, that switched to a peak policy rate of 5.1% right back into March. Now, that's only about 30 basis points. It's not a massive move. But to see the markets react as violently as Mm -hmm. they did just off those 30 basis points and reprice everything that way, that's almost what's concerning to me. Because we talk about volatility. But if you can see that kind of reaction off 30 basis points, what happens then not next month, not February, not March or May, but in the back half of the year when a lot of the markets are expecting those cuts, which are kind of expected to come out of nowhere um, as part of the Fed's playbook, that's when it feels like the violent reactions are going to be all the more. It's very interesting, Kudi. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I was actually just presuming that because 2022 is so volatile, uh, that 23 would, because we've sort of got towards the end, of the rate hiking cycle, the volatility would, 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 would calm down 
But the way you lay it out there, there's a very real point that, you know, 22 was a bad year. It doesn't mean that 23 is going to be a good year automatically. It could also mm -hmm. be uh, in the denial that the fact that inflation is really under control, uh, that uh, the Fed and Bank of England clearly now also are going for this sort of slower for longer approach. So maybe they'll calm down at 25 basis points uh, at some point in the first quarter. But, you know, they're going to keep rates and maybe that's what the surprise will be is that is that you know we, we won't get the cuts uh for, for at least another year who knows but i mean certainly uh you know i think i i hear what you're saying the volatility may not just neatly fade away yeah um let me get to something that is sort of along the same lines that marcus you flagged that you're really interested in talking about and that is an article in the bloomberg that talks about how a third of eurozone funds may actually fail a liquidity test and this is a recent paper from the ecb and i think that this feeds into what kind of volatility we may see next year, and where the bubblicious areas may be wrung out, and then the volatility. Marcus? Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking to Chris. No, do it, Marcus. <laughs> Marcus, is something you want sorry. to go? Speak, Marcus. <laughs> no, no, I will. Sorry, pardon me. I was just sort of, why isn't Chris speaking? Anyways, I mean, the key thing for me is that, you know, uh, I just worry about, um, you know, with this repricing, uh, you mentioned 30 basis points in, in, the, in the Fed pricing, but it's, the same and more in, in Europe, and that there's a real worry I feel on on pension funds and asset managers in in Europe, which are very much more heavily dependent on bonds than than, than equities would be uh, equivalent, I would say, in, in the US. That you know we had a really horrible scare in the UK uh, in September October. The Bank of England has done an amazing job, uh, probably made six billion uh, at least out of this by selling back all the bonds. It was forced to buy 19 billion. It's probably only got about five or six billion left. Uh, very clever job getting out linkers and very long dated stuff. But, you know, the warning was to the rest of the world's bond markets and particularly to Europe that you get sharp repricing of interest rates and expectations, as we saw on Thursday, that that's going to put liquidity in the bond market mm -hmm. uh, highly in doubt. We've got QT starting in the 1st of March in, in Europe and we've got Teltro's being collapsed, which is the the liquidity which you know the banks were able to gorge themselves on with super minus one percent interest rates to uh, put a lot of it into government bonds. That's been unwound by the best part of a, a trillion already, and, and more to come into the first half. Who's going to buy these bonds? It's not going to be the Japanese because they haven't been buying bonds all year, and they see no sign that there's no nothing in the arbitrage. It makes it a very sticky moment potentially if the ECB is to be believed and they do keep on hiking by fifty basis points. <gasps> There you Bigger. go. I knew I'm you had Grinch. it in you. I'm the Grinch. You are. I know, but we knew that at the beginning because clearly you don't buy Christmas presents. Um, but you did go to a what? Christmas party. Yeah. Apparently he doesn't do that. He's been married too long. I have doubts about That's, this. But oh anywho, um, so, so Kriti, what do you think about that? What Marcus was talking about in terms of the pockets of liquidity and that just getting a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, it very easily could. And I think what's different about the Eurozone as opposed to the United States is that you're dealing with very different issues. At a time when you have yields increasing around the world naturally as a function of monetary policy, check out what the Financial Conditions Index is doing. And while Marcus was speaking, I pulled it up, the Bloomberg Financial uh, Conditions. We have it for the US, we have it for the Eurozone. And for the US, you're actually looking at conditions that are right back at where we were in March, despite 375 basis points worth of Fed interest rate hikes. In the Eurozone, you haven't seen that same recovery. So the the scare that you're starting to see for Jerome Powell, for example, is not the same scare that you're going to see uh, for Christine Lagarde. Mm -hmm, in fact, mm -hmm. this idea that, well, the markets just won't quit, the markets won't just stay suppressed and stay restrictive, that's not an issue you're seeing in the Eurozone. So I completely agree with Marcus that if you actually look at financial conditions, in fact, they're actually worsening and almost um, hovering at uh, 
the lowest since 2012, 2013. We're looking at the same levels, and that is not a fun place to be. 2012 in Europe, not fun. <laughs> it was not good. It yeah. was really not good at all. And that's the real, that's real scare, isn't it? Is it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I hope it won't happen. Or obviously, the one thing that the uh, ECB could do is, is, is to slow down on its interest rate hikes. It may have to. But the but the but the problem there though, and I think you actually made this point. So I'm gonna throw the point right back at you. Um, <laughs> you kind of said, I think you said this on surveillance radio. Um, but basically, that because the eurozone was even later than the Federal Reserve to start hiking, they should, in theory, be even later to stop hiking. And then, mm-hmm. but the, the the likelihood of that is is kind of low, given that the recession that we've been waiting for for almost a year could kick off in the data as soon as January, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, exactly. So that yeah, is a I mean, scary place to be. It, it is scary. And the, the point is, is that, as always was the case, the European economy was nowhere near as strong as the US, and its inflation problem was even worse because of its proximity, obviously, to Russia and, and, the, and the reliance on Russian energy. So, duh, of course, perhaps, if we look at it, that you know, Europeans have got a bigger problem and it's going to take them longer to sort it out. And clearly, as we saw with more than a third of the governing council prepared to go 75 basis points, you know, after the Fed and the Bank of England had only done 50, that they were prepared to really keep on amping up the um, the pace on, on rate hikes and they wanted to bring forward QT, shows that the governing council is not a happy place. The guards just about keeping it together. But that's why she had to come up with a lot of very tough rhetoric using the word significantly in a very significant way. Yeah, yeah. And it also just begs the question, too, um, to to Critty's point about cutting, that eventually when you do get to the place of cutting, whether that that's in 2023 or 2024 or whatever, the Fed is going to have a lot easier time executing that and then having a response. But if you still have structurally higher inflation because of a supply crunch that's not going to be ending anytime soon, how then do you randomly cut if you still have 2% uh, plus inflation? Lots of questions. Yeah, and the majority of economists, by the way, are saying, like, we're not even – pricing in cuts. The market's getting this wrong. But yeah. that's been the playbook for the Fed for the past 10 years. So I have my doubts. I know. But that's what Marcus, I think you were saying, or was it Ira Jersey saying that the their, the put is a lot farther away than we think when it comes for the Fed, at least. I don't know about the ECB. That still feels a little bit up for grabs. Um, Kriti, thanks a lot. She's a rented TV. She's going to leave us. But we're going to talk about the World Cup. We'll talk about Twitter. Are you on Twitter, Marcus? I am, but I don't do football. <laughs> ah, fair enough. Okay, we'll discuss. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB and Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. And uh, Marcus Ashworth is joining me over in the UK. So I ended the last segment talking about Twitter. So here's what we think happened. So Twitter Spaces was down for a while, is down for a while. Apparently, there were a number of journalists that Elon Musk suspended from the social networking site. Then they went to Twitter Spaces and found that they could still participate in that. Elon Musk went on Twitter Spaces, said, you guys can't be on here, and then shut it down. It's a really bizarre turn of events. And these are journalists from, like, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and CNN. Let's get more on this with Alex Baringa. She is a tech reporter. She joins us uh, from uh, San Francisco. Alex, how did we get here? Yeah, there's a um, stunning story from some of my colleagues who actually call Twitter under Elon Musk as a Shakespearean psychodrama set in Silicon Valley. 
So we are just like weeks into Elon Musk owning Twitter, and he's kind of been, um, to take their reporting, the same kind of impulsive, erratic, kind of vindictive character um, that he's been in past worlds. But now he is, you know, um, basically changing this platform on the fly in a very public sphere um, as, you know, as he sees fit. And look, for somebody like me who's covered social media and, and been in this space for a while, it's been interesting to see how he's kind of, um, you know, uncovering some of the quagmires that that are um, pretty familiar in social media around content moderation, around deciding uh, what should and shouldn't be on platforms. But he is taking uh, really a really very different approach that we've seen um, from past CEOs, whether that's of Twitter or other social media um, outfits that are out there. Alex, it's uh, not quite not very easy for me to understand this because it seemed like the exciting thing was the Twitter tapes and, and, and files, perhaps, which were a couple of, or one was an ex-New York Times journalist, Barry Weiss was. Uh, but this seems to be more interesting to people that Musk has, I, I think the original course, is he, he, I think expression is called doxing or something, the people which were following on his private plane and he got upset about that. So he thinks that's poor performance. What is actually the bigger story here? Is it what Twitter did in the past uh, which he's now tried to expose, or is it actually just that he's doing what he said he would do, which is cut backing on certain types of activity? Whether you agree with that is it, not necessarily, uh, I'm not trying to make the point on that. I just, I, I'm not quite, what's the, the more interesting longer term story? I think I think the story looking forward is the, is the most interesting one. And you remember, like he has also said that he's a free speech absolutist, that he doesn't believe in lifetime bans or you know suspending folks willy nilly. So it, it seems like you know uh, he's kind of flip flopping on that coin there. And and I think that the, this kind of implications for what the future means for who is allowed to speak and who is not allowed to speak on Twitter is really interesting. Mm-hmm. To your point, these are. Some reporters who last night from the Times, Washington Post, CNN, who were not, they weren't doxing him. They weren't posting his location. They were tweeting about an account that had been suspended that tweets publicly available data of where private jets are. I, I see that that can be really uncomfortable. And, and you know, you can see how um, somebody might be uncomfortable with knowing where your location is if you're a billionaire with a private jet. But these reporters were not posting his address. They were Mm -hmm. talking about this latest move on the platform. So it's a really interesting kind of silencing of some of the folks who are the most active users, who some folks would say are like the influencers of this platform. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of goes to show that Elon is is pretty quick to uh, maybe tamp down on things that he doesn't like personally and do it really quickly. When in the past, we see a lot of social media companies kind of deliberate and think about policies, but he is changing things on such a fast basis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of unclear how much background conversation is going on before these moves are made. So it was interesting. Um, I went to um, a diversity and inclusion event and somebody asked me how we at Bloomberg think about Twitter now. And I was like, I genuinely have no idea how to source information from there or how to participate in it. And I'm wondering if I'm thinking that, advertisers must be thinking that. So on the one hand, sure, Elon Musk owns a company, he can do whatever he wants, but he still has to make money through advertising. What are advertisers doing? They're pausing, um, Alex. They are pausing. Advertisers are in this moment where not only have they always cared about their stuff showing up in areas that they call, to use the jargon, brand safe, 
They don't want to be next to tweets um, that, you know, misalign with their brand values. But we're also in this moment where the economy's gotten folks really skittish. Marketers are, are kind of tightening their purse strings and only putting money in the places that they think are going to give them the biggest returns with the lowest risk. Right now, if you're looking at Twitter, you know, there's been this exodus um, that's been widely reported about the big names that are leaving Twitter who are no longer spending money on the platform. So advertisers are pulling back. And you know what? That's a really bad thing for Twitter and Elon and this pile of debt that he has to service now from taking this company uh, private. Alex, really appreciate it. Alex Brinka uh, joining us on all things Twitter. I was really stunned when I saw those headlines. Um, Marcus, congratulations. You made it through the Twitter conversation. I'm alive. Yeah, Twitter's not my natural comfort zone. I don't see any change in it since, you know, what's happened with Elon. But, you know, I know a lot of people got very excited about all this. But, um, yeah, I mean, it just seems to that, roll on. And that is exactly. And that is a good perspective. But I also heard that you don't do football. Are you allowed to be a Brit and not be interested in football? Uh, yes, uh, I, I like a different type of football. It's called rugby football. Um, but, yeah, no, I don't I don't dislike football. I'm just not that excited by it. And I don't really care so much about it being in Qatar either. So that makes, you know, I probably would have watched England if they got a bit further. Um, but, you know, look, I'm very happy for both France and Argentina, who are wonderful players of the sport. And I think, you know, France is going to win the Rugby World Cup, as well as at this stage, probably the, the football will retain it. So, you know, good for them. And they play beautiful football. So if I'm around and I'm able to watch it, I probably would. I doubt uh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, <laughs> I am kind of rooting for France. Am I allowed to say that? I mean, I know everyone's all into the Messi are. thing and it's really cap his career, but I don't know. Have you seen Mbappe like kick? It's he's amazing. He is, and look, but as is Messi on El Sergio, we're two of the most fabulous footballers probably ever to walk the planet. And uh, as long as it's a great game, I think that's what you don't want is one of these sort of nil-nil draws and drags out. Though penalties are fun, to be fair. But you know, a nice high-scoring draw into penalties would be fantastic, I guess. But I think you know, whoever's the best side, if they play beautiful football, a beautiful game, uh, it hasn't been, uh, sport-wise, it's been a good World Cup, I think. So diplomatic. Marcus, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining me. Always a lot of fun talking with you guys. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the World Cup, and we'll see you back on Monday. This is Bloomberg.